Welcome one and all to the Ace Podcast. I'm Pete Perfides and this week I'm joined by a musician who established himself pretty much upon the release of his first record as one of the foremost guitarists of his generation. With Suede, he made two albums whose importance and influence seems to grow with every passing year. Then he jumped straight into another equally fruitful musical partnership with the magnificent David McCalmont, and together they scored a huge hit single with Yes and made two albums of life-affirming modern soul standards, which still sound fantastic to this day. Somewhere among all that, he also made two excellent albums for Creation Records, which spawned numerous hits, although I suspect that, as a devoted Arsenal fan, he will have derived more pleasure from the fact that one song from those records ended up being Match of the Day's Goal of the Month music. In the intervening years, he has established a second career as a producer of some note. He was instrumental in the success of The Libertines and Duffy, and he also worked on records by Bert Jansch, Tricky, Kate Nash, and more recently, Mark Eitzel. In the last few years, he's struck up a hugely productive musical relationship with Ben Watt, having appeared on Ben's acclaimed albums Hendra and Fever Dream and toured extensively with him. But at the heart of it all, he remains an obsessive fan of records. And it's that love of records that shines through on the weekly show he hosts with Mark Kingston for Boogaloo Radio, BB and the King. I am, of course, talking about Bernard Butler, and he's right here next to me. How's it going, Bernard? Good, Pete. Thanks. Can I have that? Can you just print that out now, and I'll just use that <laughs> <laughs> forever? I just if we leave it there as well. It's okay. There'll be a small fee involved, Bernard, but yeah, we can sure. discuss that later. Um, and the, you, we heard the tinkling of teacups <clears throat> and spoons because it's lovely here. It's a very convivial place to be having a conversation about music and you'll be hearing far more stirring because I take one lump of sugar in my tea. <laughs> um, so um, so it's lovely to catch It's always lovely to catch up with you because, uh, as I said, you are uh, prim- first and foremost a music fan and you, is that... That, did that ever sort of diminish as you got caught up within the sort of business of making records? Yeah. Not not so much the business, but yeah, as you said, making records. I, I, I think probably when I go through periods of making records, if I'm intensely working with an artist or just in the studio, I don't tend to listen to music apart from what I'm working on. So, and if that's for months at a time, I I won't listen to music at home, really. I mean, I'll listen to what I'm doing, and, mm. and so music will be coming home from the studio, and then I'll be A-B-ing it with what I hear at home and in the car, but that's, the rest of the time, it's Radio 4. Okay. <laughs> or, which, is, which I think is a good headspace to be in. I don't yeah. really, the, the, re, the reason for that is not just the economy of not uh, not having time, but it's, I don't like my head being filled up with outside influences. Does it make you question what you're doing? If is that the reason why? It it, it makes you question it, and also um, it starts to alter alter your vision. And if you have a vision from the start, and if you follow it fully, all the way, then I kind of have a belief that that vision will will take you to different places. Mm. But if you start having little turnings added to that vision along the way <laughs> then you're getting sidetracked and you and you're going down that side road and it may be quite a good side road but mm. you're not seeing through that vision are you a player alonger when it comes to records and your guitar would you sort of have your guitar on your lap and sort of play along to what you're listening to not really no 
Oh. I mean, I, I was as a teenager, of course. You know, I mean, that's how you learn everything. You know, be sitting in your bedroom, but not really. I mean, I, it goes into my head really more. And I think the way I've always learned records in order to play on the guitar is that I have to absorb them first, and they have to go in, and so I, I have a, a memory of them, so mm. that when I, I turn the record off, then I can go and me- remember it, and, and it, it comes to my hands, you know. Well, and maybe assimilate them into what you're doing. Yeah. Really? Which is which is part of the, I guess, part of what we've been do, talking about today, and with with hearing new music, and re- mm. or, or old music that you've never heard before. Um, it's, they're the the, the reason why that situation is very inspirational is that you get one taste of something and you have a a kind of uh, blurred vision of it and the memory comes back to you in terms of the rhythm, the feel, the energy, all those kind of things, but not necessarily the specific words, chords or anything that you're basically going to steal. <laughs> you know? And that's good in a way because you want to retain the, the feel, you want an emotional memory uh, because you know you're hoping to propagate that emotion in maybe the thing that you're about to do yeah yeah i mean and and also often when it's artists you don't know that's also a big bonus because obviously you you can have a an attachment to artists that you know and 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 things that you for example you i I don't want to make a record that sounds like the beatles today because i'm working with a synthesizer duo or or something like that and i mean you don't want how or or you're working with a four-piece guitar group Mm. and so you don't want to reference the beatles or Mm. you know something like that so you don't want that attachment but if you hear something that has an energy and you can't picture what they look like, you don't have a history of the of the record, of what happened to them afterwards or before, you know, it's 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 uh, I, I feel it's an energy that you know it's it's a, it's an exciting energy that comes out of the speaker and it's of quite a purist feel. Well, this seems to be a good time to talk about um, a famous instance, really, in which that happened with you and Duffy, which was. Um I think you know. I I love I, I I love what I hear about this story, and I'm not sure how much of it is true. But this, you know, she she uh, the story I hear is that she wrote well. You wrote Rock Ferry together after, uh, and that was the obviously you went on to have that huge hit with Mercy. But the the idea of Duffy, I almost feel that that maybe came from your first meeting with her. Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's hard for me to. Um to stick my name next to it, you know, exclusively. I mean, all that happened is uh, I was introduced to her by Rough Trade and uh, it felt a little bit like it was her last shot. You know, she'd she'd done... So, and I was played something by her and it was very, um, of its time, Radio 2 music with a nice really recorded acoustic guitar and um, a very nice mid-range voice someone who could sing clearly but it didn't do much for me but I, I thought that she could technically she could do something yeah. and what interested me is what would happen if if I did exactly what I wanted and saw how somebody who was, who was quite young uh, and impressionable how how they'd respond you know to that and and the 99 times out of 100 you'd fully expect them to say well this isn't what I want to do go away you know and I, and I, I totally accept that but the gamble is the one out of a hundred yeah. where you feel, what if, you know, and that's always the great moment in music, I think. I mean, for, well, for me, I think a lot, lots of producers and writers do work along the level where they want the 99 times out of a hundred to just to happen every time yeah. and it to be simple. And it, it, if I'm honest, it, it's not, 
it's not great in career terms, but it just doesn't motivate me. Yeah. But the what if always motivates me in music. Attention, yeah. Yeah, the, what if yeah, you... The jeopardy. Exactly, you know, what could happen, you know, because otherwise what is the point of meeting, you know? And um, so with her, yeah, I got like two hours in somebody's little uh, studio. I didn't have much equipment and um, and I played her something that I'd been working on and uh, something that was in my and it was just a, an idea that I wanted to work with somebody and I and I wanted to find somebody who'd who'd fit with it and uh, and she went with it wow. and uh, and she went with it and we wrote the song Rock Ferry and uh, in about two hours you know and she recorded the vocal during that time as well I mean we literally recorded the uh, it's just a piano riff and a drum beat hmm. and um, with the, the the principle of that song is that there's no chorus. And so the principle you have a, it's like a blues call and response that works in an A B, and then for the for the second verse it, the same thing repeats, but the the vocal goes up a register, and then for the third time it happens it goes up an octave. So you're literally just stepping up. It's quite a mathematical simple thing. And is and it true that she didn't? She was really resistant to breaking out of going up. So yeah, I mean she. So I I got her to record record the vocal before you know we'd finished the song we wrote one verse and and she recorded it and uh, then we did the next one and then by the time we got to the third one she said no i'm not doing that and i said no no i want you to go all the way you've got to go you've got you can't go back down to the first you know that's it's missing the point of the song and she did it she did it once and said immediately i hate it i don't want to do that because it was her what her mariah moment what what she called you know going quite soprano and uh into her highest register and uh, i can understand that because as a singer when you go into that high register you're it's almost like a a gas enters your your head or something (laughs) like you become slightly um faint you Mm. you know and uh uh, I think it's quite a, quite an experience, and I think you have to either go with that mm. or feel no, this isn't you're not comfortable at all. Um, it's nowhere near your speaking voice for a start, mm. so it's quite an unusual sound. Um, but never, I mean, she did it to her credit, and um, you know, I, I I went went away, and at that, I I just remember going away that that day, and it was a Friday afternoon, and thinking it was and tell, going back to Rough Trade and, and saying to them, look, we did something, and I either think it's awful or brilliant. But I don't really think it's anywhere in between. I just knew that it was it was the nature of what we'd done. It was yeah. it was you know you're just not going to get it or you're just going to love it. And I remember them uh, listening to it and on a on a car journey and then f- stopping the car and phoning me ten minutes later and saying what well, you know they loved it and and, yeah. and because they gave that faith to Duffy, um, she she went with it yeah. and I met her again and I mean I don't think she. I don't think she really had complete faith and she didn't really understand what was good about it all but she understood that if somebody likes it yeah then that's fine with her just for now so a while later I met her and she was raving about a, a record that you'd introduced to her which was Dave Godin's Deep Soul Treasures and that seemed to be a that seemed to be central to her perception of what it was that she was trying to do. And that had apparently come from you. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I mean, after we did that Rock Ferry Day, uh, so she started coming down to London. She lived in North Wales still, and she'd come down for a couple of days at a time and and come round to my house, and uh, we'd just... um, play records, start downstairs where I've got a piano and, you know, the, the hi-fi and, and she'd stand by the piano and we'd just play records and drink tea and, and talk. And uh, then we'd go upstairs uh, where I had a little studio room 
and uh, and and do something. And so in that that first um, hour when she came round, um, I just tried to play her music. Mm. And uh, you know, she. I, I guess you know, I, I'm, I'm older than her, and and have uh, collected records and CDs. You know, and, and I don't think she had that. You know, no, she didn't. But you've been alive longer, so you will have more stuff. Exactly, more stuff. And so she saw this stuff in in our front room, and you know, was was uh, picking stuff out and saying, "What's this like? What's this?" And we'd put it on, and and she just stand and take note of it, really. And it's quite interesting. She never really said to me, "Oh my God, I listened to that, and that's just amazing." <laughs> but I just gave her stuff, and she got an iPod. And um, I filled it with, uh, illegally at the time, of course, um, filled it with uh, with CDs and just said, look, here's lots of music. Because mm. she had a four-hour train journey back to Wales. And uh, so I thought, just here's loads of music, just go and listen to music. And so I, and, and so one of the principal things I did for her, I, I, I gave her, was the, yeah, the Dave, Go- Dave Godin uh, Deep Soul Treasures set, which is... Um, I mean, one of the many things I love about it that the attraction is, as we were, as we were talking about, lots of the names when you look down the playlist. If you if you if you're thinking somebody who's going to give you a great soul album or a compilation, you'd be you know be hoping to see Otis on there. Actually, Otis yeah. is on there, but you know you'd be hoping to see uh, Marvin Gaye, and Otis Redding, and and yeah. etc. on there. And you don't. You look down there and you see some um, fairly odd names: <laughs> Zerban Hicks and the Dynamics, <laughs> yes. uh, Garnet Mims, yeah, um, Doris that. Duke, lots of Dorises. Oh yeah, and uh, Dory Grayson as well, who's almost a Doris. There you go. And um, it's you, you're either put off by that or intrigued by it. And um, the attraction for me, and also in introducing it, giving it to Duffy, was that. I'm sure she had a Motown best of, you know, I'm sure she had all those things already um, or she's aware of, you know, uh, I think that's where her all the music she had at the time was the best of Motown, the best of ABBA, the best, of, you know, yeah, those yeah. kind of things. That's Absolutely, where she learned yeah. to sing. But um, giving well, us the stuff, record collections that normal people have. Exactly. Well, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Car CDs, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was I wanted to give her that inspiration that she wasn't attached to the artist and she wasn't attached to a memory. So she wasn't. If if you gave Duffy a, a, or any singer, if you give a singer a, a, a record of a singer they know, they might li- love that singer. But it's almost like saying, "I want you to sound like Aretha. Mm. I want you to sound like Morrissey." Yeah, or whatever. Um, and that can be an instant killer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, it can. They can it's say, an, "Well, I, I love Aretha, but not for me." It's a bit of an onerous challenge as well. It's a, well for many reasons. It can psychologically. It's a psych. Everything with singers is a psychological game. It always has been. Mm. So, so that's the attraction of the Deep Soul Treasures. I mean, the, the, the fact that you listen to one track after another, which completely blows you away. Yeah. Is it uh, astonishes me. Yeah. And um, and I feel what you get from it because you don't know if you were to listen to that for the first time and you never heard it. Mm. you wouldn't be taken away, you wouldn't be walking away singing the songs like you do in Motown. You're you're sort of blown away by the energy mm. and uh, um, the sort of the thunder of yeah. it. A lot of the tracks start with quite thunderous drums. They yeah. they reach climaxes very quickly. Yeah. Um, a lyrical climax, there's lyrical stories in there that, that are just, they, I think um, this is how he described it, is, is the idea of standing on the edge of the cliff and being told mm. to sing. For your life, and that's I think that's what's, what Dave Godin. I think that was what Dave yeah. Godin's yeah. Uh, description of, yeah. of of that was his um, uh, his definition that his um, 
uh, his criteria yeah. for fitting into these. Yeah, I mean, they're amazing. There's that, what's it, raw, oh yeah, talking of names, raw spit. What a great name <laughs> for an artist. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. I mean, and, that uh, theory as well, that idea of standing on uh, on the edge of the cliff, it, it for me, th- he's talking about soul music, which I understand, but I'm I'm from London and I was born in 1970. It doesn't really, it's not my world, mm. but my world is uh, is music, which does have that emotional impact within where I've, I was brought up with, you know, English guitar groups and et cetera. And... Um, the, the the dynamic I had w- with previous artists like like David McCalmont, um, but also <coughs> Brett Anderson in Suede is mm. that we had the, we were young and we were very fiery mm. and very passionate and we and and between us we weren't making the soul music by any means, but um, we had that same idea we 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 would say similar things to each other as we this should be the last thing you ever do you know and we we were talk we'd spoken this way before we made records. You've always you know. se- seemed to have made <clears throat> records like that. You know, you know, it's kind of emotionally high stakes music, and uh, so I could see it kind of makes sense to me actually that you like, you know, let's let's kind of reference a couple. I, th- I know you mentioned "Try Love" um, when we were talking earlier on by mm-hmm. Dory Grayson, and you mentioned in particular the the sort of piano arpeggio. Can you sort of elaborate on that slightly? Yeah, I mean, this is one thing that I, that happens over lots of these tracks. It also happens, uh, Doris Duke. Um, I think in these uh, in these these ten these very tender moments, there's plenty of tracks lot, where they start yeah. these little tender, yeah. uh, quite high pitched piano arpeggio, often in a waltz time, and uh, it seems to be a, a, a reference, a production reference that goes through lots of these tracks. And the team, I, I find one of the things about these compilations is that they do run as albums. He structured them so they have explosive beginnings. Mm. and uh, quite emotional endings. And in the middle, you do get quite almost lightweight tracks, quite quite pretty little motifs yeah. with again extraordinary stories and and um that's one of the things i like about it um there's a great track there's a lot of the tracks were kind of um contemporaneously contemporaneous to the vietnam war so you get things like lights out and uh i think i mentioned um um songs to sing as well by uh was that Rod Spit i think yeah um, so this real sense of, of, you know, even if you're not there, it's kind of, you're almost sort of, you know, there's a kind of judgment day atmosphere to a, yeah. lot, a lot of what's being sung. I guess that was the times. Showdown. I love that. Yeah, I mean, showdown. I was drawn to that, the title for, yeah. the, for the start, and then there's going to be a showdown. And <laughs> and musically, there's a showdown. It feels like velvet curtains are dropping mm. in the song, and it's very dark, and there's timpani going on, and... So it, I'm very attracted to this music. Velvet, velvet, I love the fact that you said velvet curtains because that's kind of what I get. You know, like you know, you, that, I get it in Rock Ferry and I get it in Yes. That kind of, you know, that kind of slightly um, faded Locarno sort of ambience. You know, the kind of you know a, a mirrorball that doesn't kind of work anymore, or sort or, or glitterball rather. Mm. You know, that sort of. Uh, faded sort of grandeur and um and you sort of do get it in a lot of this music so it's not it's in a way it's not so surprising to me that you kind of you this is what you're naturally drawn to anyway yeah i think duffy's uh take on it would be that you know i add the dirt (laughs) you know for me it's not really dirt but there is a sense of um being dragged out the gutter Mm. rather Mm. than you know 
already sitting in a fantastic restaurant yeah, <laughs> at the music. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're you're trying to pull yourself out all the time, and and you're just making it. And it's that moment of just making it, you know, that, that you get in great films, um, which is uh, you know the that's my musical interpretation, you know, yeah. that I'm attracted to. I love that high emotion. I mean, that's what we listen to music for, surely. If we don't listen for these moments of emotional jeopardy, I don't really know what we're listening to it for. And, you know, that's kind of... I feel like I'm missing that from... I don't want to be the middle-aged guy who says I can't find anything to listen to in the chart. I really don't want to be that guy. But I feel like that kind of emotional jeopardy... I, I get it. I still get it from... A lot of R and B, you know, but I, I don't. I, but I don't sort of get it from a lot of the kind of straight down the line kind of pop music that's kind of happening at the moment. And I really want, to, I really want to get it, but um, it seems to just not be in fashion at the moment. Yeah, I can't, I can't explain. That. No, <laughs> it's. No. Um, Let's go back to the guitar, the guitar thing. Because you mentioned a couple, there are guitar, a couple of guitarists you mentioned earlier on, and. Um, Let's start with James Burton, actually. Um, how did he sort of enter your orbit? James Burton I first saw with Elvis at Vegas in the, the film That's The Way It Is, hmm. the, the tour film. I think it was, his, it, was, it was his reintroduction after being in movies for hmm. years. Late and 60s, was it? I think it was 69. Yeah. And um, this band was assembled and they were going to be filmed rehearsing in these really corny rehearsal sessions where Elvis was just showing off and, and of course, and um, being Elvis and then, you know, being on stage at Vegas with the orchestra and this big, a very wide stage. You didn't, that always interested me, that the stage wasn't deep, that everyone would be lined up in one line. The orchestra, mm, the yeah. drummer would be next to the guitarist and the bass player and and, and the, the backing singers all at the side. Which is so there. Yeah. So that Elvis could could go from left to right <laughs> and it could be seen, you know, moving that far. Mm. Anyway, which I really I always really like that the drummer being down, not on a on a on a um on a big roster. But anyway, James Burton, um that's my first um introduction to James Burton standing there with a Paisley telecaster. Um, which was his signature guitar. And um, being the guy that stands rock solid, stand with one one leg slightly bent and just doing it, you know? I'm that watching, appeal, that's appealing to you. I love that. I love that. He just looked hard as nails and just, I'm standing here behind him because that's what he pays me to do. Yeah. Don't think for a second he's cooler than me. But, you but have... I'm going to allow him that thought. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't always been that guitarist, though, have you? There have been oh, no, times where you've been like, me, no. But, um, but I love I've watching seen, that. I I've seen you be both. Yeah, I mean, I think I have played both roles. I mean, obviously, when people, uh, you know, the visual memory of me, um, there's probably far more studio moments of me <laughs> standing like James Burton, you know, in that moment. And um, I think I definitely probably um, could. It goes back to the that period when I was working with Duffy and um, producing lots of artists where, um, I, yeah, I, I had to learn to be... And I, and I wanted to learn to be the person that could apply myself to the record, mm. you know, rather than defining the record. Yeah. Apply yourself to the voice. So what, what are we going to do? Who are we going to be now? Are we going to be James Burton today? Or are we going to be whoever, you know, we want to be? And what kind of record are we going to make? And having to be that person. And I think it also coincides with, you know... I'm known to um, 
people who are fans of suede or, or something that as as you know a particular kind of guitar player but for most singers that don't care about guitars they're not interested in anything but themselves and their own voice that's yeah. just the truth of it <laughs> it's the reality and um and and that's a very good discipline actually it's not a criticism it's a, they're yeah. they're very interested in in the voice being the vision of the record and um the vehicle i'm interested in, in the vehicle that, that that lets the voice be um you know the, the, yeah. at the front of a, of a recording and um and so sometimes that's getting on a piano and sometimes it's playing tambourine and sometimes it's playing something really gentle and and that's so that's what james burton was always in my head during that period is that guy who just stood there at the side looking so cool and when he's told to pull out a solo he does it and the rest of the time he just stands back and does it what he does and um so um uh, he yeah he looks fantastic and what what was interesting is um i found this this recording of um james burton early recordings um with again lots of music that i wasn't aware he made and um lots of music I'd, i've never heard before such as so i mean he was he was known for elvis but before that he was known for um being the sidekick of ricky nelson um and that track, My Babe, is 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 a big hit and a very well-known song. But what interested me, what I found on this this record was um, the instrumentals. Um, it's something you don't get very often these days. You certainly don't get uh, guitar players releasing instrumentals and them being massive hits. No, 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 it's true. It, it's something that's been left behind, probably, probably for <laughs> good reasons. <laughs> but you, there was a period in, um, I guess, the 50s and the 60s when it was a very much the thing to do. Electric guitars were almost like demonstrations yeah. of, of new technology, and and, and um, he made records. Um, there was a record just demonstrating the Dobro, right, as right. The, as the new the new guitar. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Dobro was his one of his monikers. Oh, and okay. uh, and there's a chorus. There's actually a chorus of ladies uh, singing Dobro. <laughs> it's quite <that's> pretty good. <laughs> and uh, but I found. Uh, yeah, this the, the, these couple of tracks, Swamp Surfer and uh, Cannibal Rag and Jimmy's Blues, and um, I, they're, they're, the attitude is so heavy on them. The, yeah, the, the, yeah. His guitar playing, it's just, it's just like grit. Just, it just, I can't describe how it. The track is probably Swamp Surfer or Jimmy's Blues, okay. which are just, uh, you know, cutting and uh, have this bluesy kind of drama that's very tense. And um, just about to break out. I know what you mean. The th about the thing with new technology, it's new technology is exciting and we relate to it in a different way than we do to you sort of, you know, a few years down the line when, you know, you sort of take it for granted and your relationship with it becomes almost more, a kind of more cerebral one or a more, a kind of more of a sort of uh, to do with. Uh, hanging back and kind of just allowing your virtu virtuosity to sort of set the tone. But in those early days, and I think also this is why young bands are often just, you know, the most exciting thing in the world is to see a, a young band who are just kind of just trying to find an outlet for that energy. And this brings me on, well, first of all, it brings me on to another guitarist, Link Ray, whose early recordings really sort of convey that huge excitement about what this new thing can do. And um, so that's an, you, you mentioned Link Ray as well earlier on, didn't you? Well, Link Ray, there was, yeah, he's known for very visceral, um, jagged, 
wiry, those are the kind of words you use. Mm. L- very low played, almost baritone um, on the lower strings, um, twangy electric guitar riffs, yeah. and instrumentals again, and um, which are all fantastic. And then we found this um, collection called Three Track Shack, which is when he holed up in uh, his, his brother's country farm and uh, recorded his own solo records and uh, which are warm, fuzzy, big sounding and uh, all um, as as was the, the, the time, all going back to nature and mm. seeing what we'd missed and <laughs> how we'd messed things up during the 60s. <laughs> if only they'd made it this far. And um, on this Link Crave album, the Three Track Shack, is a track called Falling Rain, which was I discovered via Carl Blau, who recorded it with Tucker Martin, Tucker Martin, the producer, who has made loads of great records for all sorts of people in the last 10 years. His father was a Nashville songwriter who worked with Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis, and I think he grew up um, on a lot of country music, and he put together his dream album mm. and got this guy, Carl Blau, who's made quite a few records <laughs> before, uh, varying degrees. And But he has this fantastic baritone and um, put him on the front cover with a Stetson and um, a <laughs> sort of a rhinestone <laughs> jacket. And um, this is a beautiful record. The Carl, So this is the new record that Carl Blau, introducing Carl Blau, which came out last year. And it has um, uh, all sorts of other um, beautiful covers on it. To Love Somebody, wow. which I'm, you'll, I'm you'll, there. you'll probably yeah. be interested in. Very much. Um, and... Um, but Link Ray's um, Fall in Rain, which is a beautiful song, and Carl Blau's version is absolutely beautiful. You must know that. It's, I love it. I know I know the Link Ray album from oh. which Falling, Ra- Falling Rain is on, because yeah. that was a sort of... I bought that just because of its sleeve, because it shows Link Ray in profile. Yeah. As sort of, it's kind of a nod to his Native American heritage. Yeah, because he, is. he looks like a sort of Native American Indian. Yeah. That track, Falling Rain, is something else. It is. Just gorgeous. It's really gorgeous. It's a gorgeous lyric. One of those where you're waiting patiently just for the next line and it just yeah. falls and it's just, wow, another great line. And I love that thing where you can play a track by someone and you don't tell them who it's by and then you can say, well, actually, that's Link Ray in this guy, which would be to anyone who thinks that they know Link Ray from mm. their, from his early stuff would be very surprised. Of course, yeah. And, um, well, a great lyric. Yeah. Mainly. And again, you know, and yeah, well, that, no indication that that was in him. Yeah. From things like... You know, that also, like you say, those kind of scratchy early recordings, which sort of you really feel like they're evoking a very remote place. There's a, the first Link Trade track, track, track I ever heard was uh, uh, an instrumental called Run Chicken Run. Have you ever heard that at all? I, I don't know that. It's like, it is like, you know, it's, I mean, I love it. There, there are at least two Link Ray songs that mention chickens in the title, which <laughs> gives you an indication of how far removed we are from any kind of metropolitan sort of uh, uh, sort of scene. Hmm. And it is that very kind of undiscovered sort of, you know, middle of nowhere America that they evoke. It's literally seems to be a song about at least you know inspired by a chicken <laughs> i mean i think of the, with the other the other link ray they said that i think i know two link rays yeah. which is probably really unfair but i guess we all have that but i think of darkness bars electricity the city all mm. those kind of things and with this you see a barn <laughs> yes <laughs> and you know deserted the middle of america um but the um the carblau record is a, is 
very highly recommended. And of course, he so he opened for Ben Watt in Seattle, and so we'd heard this record. And we're really excited to have this man arrive on a white horse uh, <laughs> one day in Seattle. And of course, he turned up in a hoodie and <laughs> with a loop pedal. Sometimes you're just better off not knowing. Aren't you? <laughs> and he was a nice guy, and it's yeah. But it's a beautiful record. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so do you still sort of? I guess you're still sort of updating. You're, you know, are you still apt to being surprised? I mean, you're such an incredible guitarist. Is it, um, do, are you still learning from these people? Oh, God. I mean, I mean, you say about do I sit down and um, play along? I mean, I don't often, but this morning I, I was listening to Cannonball Rag and uh, the the James Burton track we were talking about, and I just went straight to a YouTube tutorial and sat down with the guitar. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, because I just sometimes when you hear things like that, you just say, I need to learn that. Hmm. I need to know how to do that. <laughs> and, and and is it... Is it a ch- is it just a matter of just f- finding out the method, or do do you have to really apply yourself? I mean, again, I'm a really I'm not very I'm not a technical guitar player. I never have been. I'm always a, a bit like I am with the way I take inspirations. I listen to a record once, turn it off, and and go and try and do something from memory. Hmm. So as a guitar player, I, I'm not ever going to sit for three hours with tabs and tutorials and all those kind of things. I'll, I'll take something and then, and then I'll, I'll play it. For example, I'll, I'll watch something that's on a, an acoustic guitar and I'll, and I'll find myself playing an electric guitar and I'll make it a bit noisier and a bit slower. And um, and I'll feel, well, I'll probably leave Cannonball Rag for today, but this is quite good. Right. So okay. I, I feel that, that that's probably healthier because, of course, on YouTube there is always 5,000 people in, in Colombia who, who can already play that much better than you yeah and it, it's just ticking a box really to right. be able to say look i did it hmm. but to be able to do something um with character that's unique hmm. is again that purist uh um mentality that i think is more important you know and i think going back to again the, the way it links up with people like dave godin i think dave godin is a, is a hugely it's a brilliant character a great influence and also there are there are there is a side that the Dave Godin in life is also very negative, hanging over a cloud, hanging over every musician. Because if you try and reach that criteria, it's one of those people who holds that criteria of of what is great. Mm. Really, not just as you say, something nice to listen to on a Sunday, or but it's something that literally you're going to hold your life to. Is this is this good enough? Yeah, you know. And when you hold yourself to that kind of criteria in music, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's very tricky to live up to, with with yourself, and, and and you find yourself with, with Dave Godin's in your head all the time, just sitting there while you while you're trying to work and and, and thinking, is this ever going to be? Would this make deep soul treasures? <laughs> Which they, is... Yeah, they need to be there. Those those people in your head, though, don't they? Because otherwise, you know, you sort of. Well, I think for the again the guy in Colombia who's who's done the tutorial for Cannonball Rag probably hasn't got. Dave Godin in his head, he just wants to tick the box that technically he's put in the hours to do that, and that's a lovely thing. But I think in order to, if you want to try and live up to, Hmm. you know, as if you're a musician and you grow up with records and you you, you want to do that thing yourself, you have to, you know, be as good as it. And you have to sort of, it's sort of a demon that kind of seeks you out in a way, isn't it? And I was thinking, um, another thing I was listening to um, earlier on today was the... um, Another Ace compilation is the um, the young Ma- the Bert Yanchi's Young Man Blues compilation, which mm. um, yeah, that's the Glasgow um, yeah the the early recordings sketchy recordings and yeah there. yeah. But I was listening to um, his version of Angie on that 
and it must I, it's so early that I think I wonder if Davy Graham had even who for people who don't know who actually wrote Angie and sort of effectively sort of ushered in the the sort of folk jazz blues guitar revival um I'm not, I wonder if Davey had even recorded Angie, but it's such an early version. I wonder that maybe Bert might have learnt it just from just watching him play it. Yeah, I think he did. I think, uh, you know, when, I, when, I, when, I, as I, when he was alive and when I spoke to him, he did... A lot of these were um, learnt by ear, sitting next to each other. Bert never played records when I was around no. his flat. I mean, I spent a lot of time in his flat, and he, I think once he put on a Mingus record for me, he put on an Arum um, to demonstrate this thing that he, he was talking about with David Graham. And uh, that's the only time I remember him putting on a record. And he didn't have many records. No. And um, he... So, and I, th- I think from those times, yeah, certainly it was learnt by ear. And I think the David Graham was the Dave Godin in, in Bert's head, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, he would be hanging, hanging over him. Yeah, he, he was hugely... Um, Reverend today. There's a sort of almost gonzoid sort of attack to those early versions of Angie that uh, that Bert used to play. And I, I kind of, as I'm sure you must have done, you know, tried to imagine him in those kind of, in, in you know, a lot of those folk clubs of the early 60s, which would have been quite reverential, um, scholarly places. Mm. And I just imagine like Bert shuffling in mm. and playing this. You, to call it folk, it never does it justice. I think because it's not really. I don't see it as being. I mm. mean, it's more like a blues. But even blues, there's a real. You can really see what Jimmy Page, the seed of what Jimmy Page wanted to do. You know, and just like you say, um, <clears throat> um, you know, David Graham might have been the. Um, the Dave Godin in Bert's head. I think maybe Bert was the David Graham in, or the Dave Godin in Jimmy Page's head. Mm. It kind of goes goes on, but for sure, yeah. I mean, I think that, that for, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, it's the blues aspect that I find more interesting to Bert's work, and he spoke a lot about the jazz uh, references, particularly with David Graham, um, that fed in Mingus was a big one, mm. um, and and I think they used the folk songs folk idea um uh, the folk method mm. to, to put that across but but they i didn't think i don't think that the i think the the the, the ones that are most influential um certainly in rock music are the ones that um have that blues influence yeah um and like you say with Bert, david graham's angie is, is much more technical it's much more together and it was something that was learned and Bert's was from memory I think, and it is, you know, it's, it is again. It's got that visceral tendency to it, quite aggressive, um, quite out of out of out of um, time, mm. and where he drops little bars here and there, and beats, and uh, yeah, I can imagine there was, um, yeah, lots of chaps, beatniks, scratching their chins in their suits and ties, uh, sing in those clubs, thinking, no, I saw Davey do it last week, and no, to be yeah. honest, <laughs> this chap doesn't have the chops. You know? No, as was it ever? The, and it's a cycle that repeats itself a lot, doesn't it? You, know, you got it with, like, the, when the Pogues first appeared, they mm. offended folk, you know, Irish folk purists. And I yeah. guess it's, it's a sign that you're onto something good, in a way, I think. I mean, I used to play with Bert all the time, and, 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 and I knew, I knew going into it, first of all, I made a decision, I'm never going to play acoustic guitar next to this guy, because there's no point. But, he doesn't play the electric guitar. 
<laughs> so, so bully for me. Mm. I can do something you can't. And uh, <laughs> well, he never did anyway. But um, but I was totally aware that I was going up in front of people who'd, who'd seen Bert, you know, through the years, and that they were just going to be looking at me, thinking, "Who's this young scallywag with his electric instrument? Which What's I... going on here?" And I and I, Bert did say to me a few times that he thought that was funny because he, he quite liked that because he secretly didn't really like that attachment. Wow. He liked the. You know, he he liked winding them up a little bit. He did, <laughs> the yeah. jumper brigade, as he used to call them. Yeah, yeah. It's this funny, like, you know, sort of ambivalent relationship that I think a lot of the bluesier characters in the sort of quote unquote folk scene sort of had. It's the world that they were kind of co-opted into, but not necessarily the world that they would have chosen to be part of mm. in the general sort of scheme of things. Yeah, it wasn't very rock and roll. Uh, time of rock and roll. But as we know, was one of the most rock and roll pers- people you could have, in his own way. Yeah, in his own way, he was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Um, let's talk about a couple of other sort of uh, uh, tracks that you've set aside. Um, I think you mentioned earlier on. I don't know. Might not necessarily be expected to see Doris Day in your list of preferred records I love Doris Day well I mean I love this track and I mean I think I did discover I mean these two CD these two compilations The Deep Soul Treasures and um, The Jack Nietzsche Story um, I, I, I don't know how I ended up with this but it was at the same time uh, that's Time of Duffy yeah and uh, and it was and it's a this track um, uh, Move Over Darling was a big influence on me. Hmm. Yeah, at that time, you know, because it's. I guess Doris Day would be somebody who I remembered from, uh, you know, being a small child and seeing her movies on a Saturday afternoon, and my mum mm. liking her or something, you know. And it had been completely written off. And then I got this um, CD of the producer, the arranger, Jack Nietzsche, um, who was Phil Spector's right hand man. Uh, also worked with the Stones and Neil Young and did many film scores and had that great crossover between the 60s and 70s where he worked, he was very rock and roll and uh, but also worked in orchestral <laughs> scores and did a lot of great pop music mm. and so he seemed to be trusted by all sides And I love that, that the 60s was brilliant for that because you had all these band leaders and arrangers who had come from maybe, you know, light orchestral music and they had all these skills which could, if necessary, be co-opted into pop music and rock and roll. Mm. And I kind of miss that. So I, th- I think that's a kind of... Some amazing music was made because of that. Yeah, I mean, budgets were could be huge for a start, which is a big diff- makes a big difference mm. these days. Um, I, one of the things that I, I, I read researching this um, was how the he'd pick engineers to work with. Jack Nietzsche would be out in the room, he'd be the scorer, the arranger, so he'd be out with the musicians, and there could be dozens and dozens, an orchestra, and, and everything going down in one hit. So the backing track going down in one hit, that's quite a feat if you're mm. standing in a room. Um, but also be- playing between the live room where the musicians are and the control room where the engineers are, 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 are trying to mix, mm. basically in one, on, on the fly. And one of the interesting things... I picked up on his. He used to, he'd always pick a studio and an engineer who could read the score off the mixing desk. So I'd be looking at the score I'm reading, and the reason for that was because the engineer would be trying to judge where the music got louder and where more things were happening. And in order to do that, you had to be able to read the score. And I thought that was a really interesting, another one of those details of lost art, mm. you know, in recordings. I mean, it's something that 
you'd find in orchestral studio, you might, might find in Abbey Road these days or, you know, places where they do film scores, but you wouldn't find that in a, 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 in a regular recording setup, you know, and, uh, and the skill to be able to put down these recordings. And I think one of the great skills about, uh, the great things about having that skill of, of all the musicians playing at once in a room is it's not just the technical ability to record it and mix it in one hit, but actually the thrill of being a musician in a room and knowing that you get that one chance mm. and you could be the guy that messes it up. Yeah, you and, you, and that <laughs> that transmits itself. There's a, that, the, the, Again, it's about... Te- so much of what we've spoken about, if not explicitly, um, implicitly, um, involves tension, really, the, and jeopardy, which is a word we've mentioned before. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. I think, right. Ele- you know, it's electric. I've, I've done that. I've done it a couple of times, um, been lucky enough to do things like that, and um, what springs to mind? Uh, well, I did a track last year for Duffy, funnily enough, and it was for a, an advert for Burberry. So it's a, in a, in a way, it's a bit of a waste because it turned out great and uh, ended up using 15 seconds in a perfume. Can advert. it can it come out in uh, its entirety? I think it is actually. I think they did post it recently on YouTube, and it's it was a cover of um, "I Put a Spell on You," amazing, uh, the Screaming Jay Hawkins track, and uh, we I managed to convince Burberry to let me hire Abbey Road Studio One. With an orchestra, a harp player, a horn section, uh, <laughs> as well as me, uh, Mako, my trusty drummer, yeah. um, a piano player, me playing guitar, and um, amidst the whole shebang, um, Duffy in a box in the middle of the room. I think there's a, there, there are a lot of people that would, would, would love you to finish off what you started with Duffy, really. Because uh, it never did get finished off. Well, no. <laughs> That's another... Did it, it went well. Story. I mean, I didn't know you'd met up with her again. I did because it had been. Oh, I know. I see. I speak to her all the time. Yeah. I mean, from, you know. Um, but she, we did this last year anyway. And I convinced her to do it, and think she thought I was mad. And uh, but w- the reason why I, I've done it before with her as well, and and the reason I always suggest it is I know that it will put exactly what we're saying. That tension in the room. Everyone be tense. As a singer, if somebody suggests that to you, you either say no, I'm not doing that. Fair play to her, then. And, and, and absolutely, most people, most people in the world would, would <laughs> don't be ridiculous. Of course, yeah. I'm not going to do it. And sing live. And, uh, and to her, she just said, OK. And we did it. And we, the way we set it up was in an old-fashioned way and recorded, uh, rehearsed all day until the strings came in, which are very expensive. So the strings could only come in for the two hours in the evening. and um, Which you love, obviously. Which is fantastic because it gets to the evening and it's like the lights go down and suddenly everyone's in the room and Duffy's in there with a bottle of wine and, and she's in the, in, in the booth and we're all ready to go. And we, and we did several takes and we got it down and chose. And I, and I got to the end of the night and I just thought, oh, my God, I've no idea idea and uh, <laughs> and I took it away and I sort of just didn't sleep that night basically because I thought I, I, if we I, haven't got the take I mean bear in mind that to reiterate this is everybody playing at once in the same room so the sound of the drums is all over the sound of the strings and and, and all over her vocal she has to sing in tune technically everything and uh, never mind me playing guitar <laughs> in the bits to be awkward but that's inter- that's one that's kind of an interesting <laughs> thing about you because you are I think you are an inversion of a thing that you get with a lot of musicians which is that you know they like to they like a kind of safe controlled environment in the studio 
and actually away from the studio at home everything's kind of falling apart they're not they can't they're terrible fam- they're not terrible at keeping a family together or whatever and you're the opposite of that you know you have you seem to have a very kind of solid sort of family life you know you don't sort of travel too much um and um you know that that's all in place seemingly with you and yet in work repeatedly i've noticed without wanting to sound too much like your psychotherapist <laughs> you sort of you do seem to kind of like to engineer sort of situations where it could all just fall apart yeah you should see our kitchen on a saturday morning though but um <laughs> yeah i like the idea i mean i'm a, i'm a musician first and foremost and i like being in that situation and i feel that if musicians other musicians don't get themselves in that situation or don't get given the chance to i feel that secretly they thrive off it and you can get the best out of them yeah. and so if you choose well choose i mean the string players are always thrilled when you they're always just delighted because they see the singer they see me playing guitar and they love the set everyone loves the sound of it to be in that room there's some of my favorite i mean that's one of my favorite studio memories it's yeah. just being in that room at nine o'clock at night looking around me thinking oh my god this sound Sounds just it, it might sound shit, but it sounds I unbelievable. Love, it's love. a noise, you know, it's a noise. Yeah, and yeah. I love that feeling of the noise and everyone looking aside and you can just one foot out of place of everybody, that tension. Yeah. And I think that's that's uh I think that's something that I take visually from uh, Deep Soul Treasures, all these records. i f I don't know where the I don't know what these people look like or, or, or anything, but when I hear these records, I see that in the room, in my head, that's what's happening, and so I go off and try and do that. It's, yeah. And it's, it's it's probably not, you know. No, not, you're right. You get it a lot. You know, this is what's so amazing about this back catalogue, you know, because it's full of these moments, which, as you say, you know, uh, these a lot of these people probably never entered a recording studio again. But something like, you know, and it, it's it's all out. Ace are very good at kind of pulling these kind of moments from God knows what archive they're even in, but like even yeah, even something like See and Don't See by Mary Queenie Lyons and oh, just so many great records. Now I just briefly before we go, we're running out of time. But before we go, I want to just ask you about um, some of the other things that you've been doing. Um, one of my favourite records of the year um, is the album that you produced for Mark Heitzel. Um, is it hey, is it Mr. Fer- I know the singles for Mr. Ferryman. Hey, Mr. Ferryman. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The 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 Mark Heitzel album. Hey, Mr. Ferryman. Um, seems like you hit it off. Yeah, I I I love Mark. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, I, a... I was warned that I wouldn't. <laughs> and, and you know, and of course, that as we were saying just a minute ago, that's that was the major attraction. <laughs> <laughs> that the possibility that, that it could go terribly wrong was really interesting to me. And again, but again, you sort of did that thing where you sort of slightly, I think you uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you slightly force his hand in terms of the, the title track? You sort of, you kind of leaned on him to kind of pull out a, a, like a pop song. Well, the last it's the last ten years, which has the the the, the, um, uh, the lyric uh, about the ferryman, and um, oh, yes, oh, yeah, and um, he, well, he, I was given a bunch of demos that which he'd recorded a couple of years previously, and one of them, one of them, lots of Mark songs. His fans won't take offence to this. Are quite quite slow, mid paced, and they're they're very emotional. And he had this one thing in the middle. It had this quite shuffle, what I call the shuffle beat, the dun da dun da dun da dun da that kind of shuffle beat and um and it sounded a little bit like the wonder stuff you know and um but it had this brilliant lyric to it and i i loved i loved the line i've spent the last 10 years 
trying to waste half an hour and i just that i just loved that so when we were when we started um trying to compile songs we sat together for the first few days just trying to pull to get them to say look look play me everything you've got and um and uh, i said what about that one you know and um i hated the rhythm of it and so i said what about we just turn it around and, and do it like um you know something of rumors or something mm. <laughs> you know one of those you know a 70s road uh, uh, you know something you'd hear on it on the radio in a seventies uh, yeah. film, you know, and um, and that was the idea of it, and and I just pulled it out, and Mark was great because he just let me do. He I think he he had it in his head that the reason he was coming here to London to do this was to give me a free reign. Trust me, you know, yeah. and uh, and I think that's a a great thing. Getting trust from an artist is is the greatest thing. You know, you Absolutely. feel you feel once you've got their trust then it will work both ways. You know, when, because I want to respect that trust as well. It means I don't want to then say, right, I'm going to do whatever I want. And, you know, it, you, you kind of actually want, 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 want them to like it. You know, you want to draw them in and get the best out of what you're trying to add, you know. And, um, and, it, and it references my, you know, reverence of people like Jack Nietzsche, you know, how they took, they were arrangers. They, they didn't write, write the songs necessarily, but they came in and they, they thought, how about you could do this? What about trying this? What about mm. turning the rhythm upside down? What about doing it three time? What about adding strings? What about taking the strings out? You know, all those things, those what ifs. And, um, and, I, and I love being in that position. And, mm. and so Mark gave me that um, opportunity. And, it was, and, and I knew that every song would have a great lyric. I mean, his major um, strength, is his mm. words are just yeah. fantastic. Absolutely. You know? And, yeah. I mean, he a couple of occasions he was rewriting, he'd go into the booth and he'd say, let me do that again, and he'd sing it, and he'd rewrite the words. I've never seen anyone else do that. And you'd and he'd say to me, which one do you... And I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I'd say, oh, the second one's better. But they were all just yeah, as good. I would have yeah. gone for any, you know? And uh, he's a genius. I mean, I think yeah, know, I think I, he is. He's just. I just think he's testament. I think he just. One day the world will just kind of remember on a major scale. He might take a song in a film or something, but you know, it will get. You know, as long as you keep every every song is like a message in a bottle. I think as long as you keep throwing them out there. But I, I wanted that song. I wanted him to have a pop song. We talked a bit about how you know, no one does any pop with me. You know, I'm just this miserable American song, right? And I'm like, well, let's do something that's upbeat and radio. Why not? Let's do it. You know, with a lyric that's about. <laughs> You know, been kicked out of a, falling out of a bar and crossing the sticks and absolutely whatever. So I, I like the way it's a cheery, upbeat uh, track. Um, we're almost out of time. I'm just going to ask you um, if there. It, I'm going to ask you a production question, just in terms of if um, you know, is there a, is there a record that you wish you had produced? Oh. Or a production that you think I don't think I'll ever be able to sort of <laughs> exceed. That. Just a production that's so inspired and so perfect. Oh you think, God, I, you caught me totally. I mean, it's probably something like uh, "Move Over, Darling." <laughs> just yeah, little, little moments that happen in records that I just say to myself, "Oh my God, I wish I'd done that." There's a moment in "Move Over, Darling," which this is a really technical thing, but bear with me. Where the strings, the high violins come in, and they come in, they come in a tone below the root of the song and for me that just that's a eureka moment for me yeah. i just what that says to me in big letters is that was someone's idea for most people that's just the strings coming in but for me the note they come in on it just says tension you know it just hangs on the wrong note and i just love that and i just feel like jack nietzsche did that so that i would see that 
<laughs> one day. <laughs> and of course, now I want to go and listen to Mumo Darling and see exactly yeah. what you mean. Uh-huh. Um, it is an amazing song. Um, it's, what a wonderful way to spend an hour. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank Bernard. you. Yeah, pleasure. And uh, yes, well, um, I hope you enjoy some of the records that this will no doubt spur you to go and spend time with. You've been listening to the Ace Podcast. I'm Pete Perfides, and you've been listening to the words of Bernard Butler. You've been listening to the Ace Podcast. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need.